Welcome to Business Lines Pulse podcast that tunes into all things health and pharmaceuticals. I'm Jyoti Datta. Our guest this time heads what some would say a little-known nanotech research company that operates, however, in the big league of mRNA vaccines. From its facilities in Ratnagiri in Maharashtra, Web Life Sciences is one of only four global suppliers of specialized lipids to vaccine makers. Arun Kedia is the managing director with Web Life Sciences, and he gives us an insight on how they've been coping with this ever-increasing need for COVID-19 vaccines and its lipid ingredients. Thank you, Mr. Kedia, for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Jyoti. Yeah, my pleasure. When you spoke to Business Line in May, Mr. Kedia, your Ratnagiri factory was already running three shifts. Now we are two months on. Has it only got busier in a sense? What is the big order that you're servicing now? We continue to run three shifts. Of course, there's no three and a half shifts, but we, on an emergency basis, we tried to increase capacity. We were successful. We delivered a lot of lipids for the amphotericin, which goes for the mucormycosis. And thanks to the emergency ramp up of production, most of the mucormycosis crisis across the country is now mostly under control. Right. You had beefed up capacity, I think, pretty steeply within a month. That's right. It was quite a challenge for our team and they were able to successfully deliver. And So going back to where it started, could you explain the role of specialized synthetic phospholipids in drug delivery? And how did VAV venture into it where your competitors are not in the neighborhood, they sit in Germany and in other countries, so to speak? Yeah. So first of all, I would like to explain targeted drug delivery by a very simple example. Let's say we have a headache and we take paracetamol for the headache. We take the paracetamol orally, but it does not go directly to the brain. So it would go to the stomach and then the intestine part of it permeates from the intestine into the bloodstream, but the blood circulates all over the body. It goes to the heart, liver, kidneys. And a tiny part of that blood through the blood-brain barrier will deliver the paracetamol to the brain. Now, in actual practice, roughly about 2% of the paracetamol which we consume actually reaches the brain. And that's enough to cure the headache. But the question is, what happens to the 98%? So it will go all over the place and it would have different forms of toxicity, nephrotoxicity, hepatotoxicity. In layman language, it would be called side effects. And so let's say the efficient use of the drug is about 2% and the inefficient or the undesirable effect is 98%. Now, in the case of paracetamol, one may not care about the 98% either going to waste or creating side effects because those side effects are not toxic or not highly toxic. But let's imagine a cytotoxic drug like an oncology drug for cancer. And cytotoxic drugs are designed to be poisons to kill cancer cells. But if these drugs started killing 98% of healthy cells, and only 2% of cancer cells, then we would have a big problem. And we do have a big problem. So this is the reality of cancer treatment today. And often doctors will say that, oh, you came at an advanced stage, go home and pray or go to a temple. We can't do much. It's not that the drug is not available, but they know that because of the unspecific nature of the drug, if they start killing a large number of healthy cells, the patient is going to die anyway. So targeted drug delivery in the sense means delivering the drug to the target site, which can be an organ, tissue, membrane, or even a single cell, leaving the healthy cells intact or leaving the unintended cells intact. Again, in layman language, you may call it the silver bullet. 
another example i like to make is that if you have five terrorists in a stadium you shall not bomb the entire stadium you shall use snipers so basically the targeted drug delivery system is like using very precise snipers to actually target the diseased cells now what is the role of phospholipids so phospholipids are able to identify these cells and deliver the drug to those cells phospholipids by themselves are not the drugs so they do not bring therapeutic action in this particular example of targeted drug delivery but they are able to deliver the drugs to the precise address so to say that's very illustratively explained absolutely so how did vav get into this particular segment of drug delivery you don't see too many companies there i mean you are only one of four global suppliers on the mrna vaccine for instance so it's quite by accident i mean i don't want to make it sound very glamorous one of our international customers and we did deal in the past in traditional pharmaceutical materials or substances or apis and one of our customers in a casual conversation asked can you offer phospholipids or can you produce phospholipids and then we started looking it up actually the first time i had to ask the customer to spell it out but then we started looking it up obviously there were no producers in india and what was mysterious is that the more we read about it or the more we tried to find out the more mysterious it became so that was quite like a challenge again you read about conventional apis paracetamols and ibuprofens and after reading two weeks you know most of what you need to know about it so this was very intriguing the research papers at least the academic research papers seemed to be very promising there were not too many marketed products on the world market and we clearly saw that this is going to be the future of drug delivery uh in fact there's an internal joke uh, which is more like a scientific joke that uh, you know which was made when we first got into this field is uh, that uh, 10 years later we will probably laugh at the way the pharma industry is ki bhi aise body mein drug kidhar bhi chhod dete the kidhar kidhar jayega it would not know where it would land and uh, there was no precise address for the drug and which phospholipids can bring so i mean that was the uh yeah that was the start of our journey in phospholipids yes as you mentioned there are not too many players because the science is complex so the science is complex not only on the production on the characterization on the application nanoparticles are engineered particles so each delivery system changes as per the drug as per the organ to be targeted as per the release profile so they are finally tailored systems the science of it i'm going to be quoting you here where you said that too much importance is being given to the bottling and distribution of vaccines and there's very little understanding of the science behind formulation of lipid nanoparticles which you've described as a medical breakthrough in vaccine based delivery systems and which have sort of fueled the mrna vaccine development at a blistering pace why do you feel there is little understanding of the science is this something that you're speaking of in the indian context or do you think even globally there is more attention on the actual distribution and all the other paraphernalia than the actual science why did you say that 
So first of all, you know, the conventional manufacturing, which is bottling, labeling, cartoning, distribution, this is an ROI business. So it's relatively easy to get into it. You put it 100 crores, you have, you buy equipment and you are going. Even larger companies will find it easy to make those decisions. When we come into the nanoparticle, it's actually much more science. And if you go wrong, then it's, there is much more risk. So that's point number one. Now, what the science involves is actually two critical parts. One is isolation of the RNA, which will give the precise immune response. And this has to, so to say, match the RNA of the virus to give the same kind of immune response, but at a weakened level. So that's one part of the precision without getting too much into technicals. The second part is to deliver this RNA across the cell membrane. And that's where lipids come into play. Now, there are several roles expected of the lipid. So first of all, RNA is itself very vulnerable to deterioration or metabolism. So the lipids must first of all protect the RNA till it is delivered. So you might say one role is packaging. The second is it should not interact with the RNA. So it carries the load as is without change in the RNA. And the third is it must deliver the RNA across the cell wall. But that's also not easy because the cell wall is designed to be a barrier. And how do you cross the barrier while maintaining the integrity of the barrier? So obviously you cannot disintegrate the entire barrier. You will have no cells and the patient will die. So while maintaining the integrity of the barrier, lipids will deliver the RNA into the cell. So you might say in a simplistic way, RNA is the passenger and the lipids are the taxi service, but a very precise taxi service. That sounds very complicated. And do you have like a huge R&D team here or in terms of both manufacturing as well? Does it require, this is proprietary technology that you're talking about. So do you have a huge team here? What is the, and for manufacturing, is it a large plant? Is it people or capital intensive? No, we don't have a huge team. So that's paradoxical because this requires, let's say, more innovative thinking rather than a large number of people on the ground. Say our manufacturing is reasonably capital intensive, but not hugely capital intensive. I would say the bottling and packaging is much more capital intensive. So this is more about innovation and science and understanding chemistry, understanding engineering understanding biotechnology. So we have a highly scientific team, I would say, but these are relatively small teams. I mean, if you look at most of the research on RNA or RNA delivery, it has come out of small companies and small teams rather than the giants. None of the giants have actually invented or developed these technologies. So even the Pfizer and have licensed this technology from relatively smaller companies. That is correct. So when we're talking of innovative work, Increasingly, that is being spoken of in India as well. Parallelly, there is another discussion on intellectual property that's happening globally. This started with India and South Africa, but other countries are also seeking intellectual property right waivers on COVID-linked products to increase access. So for a company and a relatively small working on innovative work, how do you approach this concept of intellectual property protection and access? These are two different topics. So obviously intellectual property needs protection for companies to make investments in R&D. That's bitter hard reality because research does take capital. 
quite often it is over glamorized by large companies because they are acquiring ip and then question on the protection becomes a debate but specifically talking on vaccines so there are two aspects we may need the ip waiver as a country today for solving the problem today so if if there's an ip waiver we can have 20 companies starting to produce the mrna vaccines as the technology exists with the larger companies or the owner of the ip but in the long run actually india is quite capable of generating its own ip it just needs an ecosystem we need let's say clever private equity funds to fund that and i don't believe seriously that the ip currently registered with the large multinationals is state of the art we have much more scope of improving that ip even for vaccines but it could be a timing question so if we have to solve for the pandemic today obviously we need ip waivers but one year later could be a superfluous debate right and you have said that earlier as well that indian companies are well capable of generating their own ip indian companies not but indian academia and research institutions and public institutions yes very very capable right. indian companies a- in general the pharma companies in general are not very inclined to basic r&d so that's a challenge i mean if we look at two sectors in the indian pharma industry one is contract manufacturing for multinationals and the second is generic medicine 95% of the sector will be taken by these two subsections which means there are not too many indian companies which are doing basic research forget about nanoparticles but not even basic research on modified release kind of things which is much more simple so you know in technical jargon if you say the 505b2 route of the us fda which is merely modifying an existing formulation or improving even that is hardly done in the indian context so going to nanoparticles is not very easy for indian companies there are quite a few beginning to get into this space now there is interest companies are beginning but on the academic side we have a lot of foundation already so the ip could come from there but again ip originating from the academic institutions can easily be licensed by the companies and you still have the ball rolling that's very interesting that you say that the larger companies still have to make that journey towards doing this kind of innovative work yeah it's very normal to see very large company r&d centers maybe 500 crore investments which are actually trying to make generic versions of the reference listed drug in my personal view and this may sound harsh to my friends in the pharma industry but this is like akin to running giant xerox machines <laughs> you've spoken about the ecosystem that is required now government and through the department of biotechnology there is or at least we hear there is a lot of support that is being given to innovative companies and innovative work but you think with with the kind of work you're doing you're still in a very niche area that's still on the government radar and that what sort of support would you seek from the government so i again would have two answers to that the current scheme of the government which is the pli scheme which has been announced and which should say you know go into operation shortly that's very profound and i see that as a very encouraging scheme so i'm very let's say hopeful that this particular scheme would really encourage investments into innovation but the second part of my answer is that government funds scientific research in two ways either it keeps pouring money into existing institutions so the iits and nipers will keep on getting more funds without any measure on what did they actually deliver and not deliver in terms of published papers 
but deliver in terms of actual human medicine which could benefit mankind or benefit the country without any measurement or regard to this the government would keep increasing budgets and i often say this that it's almost like hoping that by pouring in more money something will come out and if it didn't come out for 20 years maybe the 21st year you will get lucky the second was the government would let's say encourage research on the industry side and there were specific programs dsir birac and all of that but in my personal view again and it may sound harsh but most of those schemes although the purpose is to encourage scientific innovation but the schemes are designed in such a bureaucratic way that real innovative companies actually cannot benefit and you will have clever accountants or bureaucrats inside companies who will claim benefit i want to give a specific example and i know this may be let's say unpopular but one of the dsir schemes has a condition that your lab must be 400 square feet in size now my natural question is that research and innovation comes out of the brains of people not 400 square feet of halls and if it did then marriage halls would have 10 research papers every month <laughs> which are 4000 square feet so i mean the 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 conditions put in are actually quite the opposite of the intention and that can be a clash i would say the pli scheme kind of and i'm personally encouraged as i mentioned i think it's half designed by scientific people and people who actually understand innovation and so we are quite hopeful also yeah. it's a scheme almost without limits so huge amount of money has been put not peanuts and symbolic things and it encourages actually incremental sales and so it's a measure or it, it's a reward for actual performance rather than a reward for effort so that is encouraging so we, we will see maybe in few months or years ahead what sort of outcomes that might have but having said that now where does the money for your research and all of that come from do you have private equity knocking at your doors now that your the spotlights on you do you have people looking to invest in the company and all of that so currently we are all internally funded and i mean it's in internal accruals we have let's say less risk or less silly questions to answer we've had a lot of discussions with private equity so first of all they are not knocking at our doors we are open to it of course but the challenge is again trying to explain this complex space we are in is not easy because whatever is innovation is not really very well understood by private equity so they like to look at previous examples they like to look at market data survey reports and then there is a natural question oh if it is so wonderful why is xyz company not doing it say look go ask that company why they are not investing in innovation so it's not easy to connect with private equity we are trying we are open but nevertheless we continue our journey without waiting for anybody and funds coming in from the parent company in that sense that's right which is also into making apis and uh, pharmaceutical products Yes the parent company deals in APIs it's mainly outsourced manufacturing the parent company does not produce APIs by themselves right. but they work with uh, contract manufacturers so coming back to something you started with on the amphotericin which is the mucormycosis or the black fungus drug or what we understand as used to treat black fungus which came up with covid-19 your contract for supplying that has that knee requirement ebb is the no 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 the requirement is not ebbed so the requirement is there we we had said initially we will not be able to meet the entire country's requirement 
because amphotericin B was a small indication drug. So except for the mucormycosis pandemic, which kind of took the demand haywire, otherwise it was small volume product. So when the pandemic hit, we tried to meet part of the demand and that we have done successfully. But we are still not able to meet all the demand. There is a German producer and they are trying, but I would say 80% or maybe yeah, something like that we've been able to meet the demand. But the mucormycosis, although it has subsided, it's not disappeared completely. And so most of the public hospitals are still vigilant. They like to maintain stocks of the drugs. There is something called reserve stock, safety stock. And we are still in a shortfall situation. As a country, we are still in a shortfall. So we've been able to help the situation largely, but the problem is not completely solved. And as we talk of a third wave, then I think those reserve stocks and all of that will be even more important. Yes and no, because the mucormycosis crisis is not related to the third wave of the COVID. It's right. more related to the abuse of steroids, right. largely. So most healthcare institutions and doctors have learned their lesson and they're not blatantly prescribing steroids anymore. So that has subsided. And so I don't expect that the mucormycosis pandemic will re-emerge. But yeah, nevertheless, yeah. there are two aspects, even if it does not re-emerge, hospital and the system must have enough stock that if it does, then they are able to handle it. Not to forget that mucormycosis is much more fatal than COVID. Yes, hopefully there's better management of the treatment. And it's like you said, there isn't an overuse or an abuse of, of steroids. Yeah. True, true. Um, Although that's the major factor, but that's not the only factor because the second factor was, you know, with the upsurge in the COVID, there was a lot of pressure on the hospitals and then hygiene and handling and all of that got compromised. And in extreme situations, there were people sharing a bed and I mean, also the staff was getting infected. So there were less staff in the hospital. So indirectly, it was related to the second wave, of course. And it's a combination of factors as always. So beyond COVID vaccines, you have been developing or your company has been developing this technology also for other segments. So beyond COVID vaccines, can you just give us a little insight into where else this technology comes into use and which are the segments that you are operating in? So the technology is actually much more interesting than just the pandemic of COVID. First of all, I would say, let's say there are two broad directions because there are many directions, but I would say two major directions for target rate drug delivery. So one can be the conventional drugs and oncology is one example, but it can apply to almost any conventional drug regardless of the route of administration. So whether it's topical, injectable, parenteral, pulmonary, through the lungs. So that's one area and that will keep on increasing as people realize that need precise dosing of medicine, you can reduce the costs and you can reduce the side effects. The second application is the RNA delivery, not to look at only messenger RNA, but you have also SIRNA and SIRNA is much more promising because the promise is that it can actually permanently cure diseases which are considered uncurable, diabetes, for example. So wherever you have a genetic question or a genetic route to a disease, the SIRNA could possibly offer solutions for those kind of diseases. And that is a Pandora's box of solutions. So we see that the possibilities for the future can be 100 times bigger than COVID. Actually, internally, if we discuss the COVID pandemic was a small blip in our larger journey. It, it's a positive blip for lipid sellers, but nevertheless, it's a small blip. Right. 
Oncology is the main space that you're looking at. That is cancer drugs. Oh, on- oncology, hepatology, cardiology, even things like multiple sclerosis. I mean, the list can be endless. I mean, that would be a three-hour lecture. Right. Yeah. That's interesting to know that there's a whole lineup that is there and a whole journey to be explored. And that's uh, with that, we'll close this interaction. And um, from the business line team and myself, thank you so much, Mr. Kedia, for that insightful conversation. Pleasure talking to you. Thanks a lot.